Welcome to Election R&D from the University of Southern California's Center for the Political Future. Our podcast brings together America's top politicians, journalists, academics, and strategists from across the political spectrum for discussions on hot-button issues where we respect each other and respect the truth. We hope you enjoy these conversations. Welcome. I'm Bob Shrum, the Warsaw Professor of Politics and the director of the Center for the Political Future at USC Dornsife. And I, first of all, have to thank Erica Maldonado, who did an amazing job putting this program together. We have a commitment at the Center to modeling and advancing civil dialogue where we respect each other and we respect the truth. We're conducting a series of conversations all through the summer on Zoom. The last weeks have seen a national sea change on issues of race and policing and more profoundly on America's original sin of slavery and racism. So today's topic is the George Floyd tragedy. Is there a path forward and what is it? From the horror and evil of those eight minutes and 46 seconds and all the other killings and abuses like it. We have an extraordinary panel. Art Acevedo is the chief of police of the Houston Police Department, the president of the major cities chiefs association. And if I can editorialize, he is outspoken and eloquent during this crisis. Donna Brazil, who will be with us in a few minutes, is the former chair of the Democratic National Committee, a Fox News contributor, a veteran Democratic strategist whom I worked with in campaigns. Sydney Kamlinger-Dove is a California State Assembly member. She's chair of the Select Committee on Incarcerated Women. Her latest bill calls for community groups to be first responders in cases of mental health crisis, domestic violence, and substance abuse. She's a Trojan alum who earned her degree here in political science. Earl Southers at USC Price. He's a professor of the practice in national and homeland security. He was President Barack Obama's first nominee for Transportation Security Administration, Assistant Secretary at the Department of Homeland Security. Uh, He was Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger's appointee as Deputy Director for the Critical Infrastructure of the California Office of Homeland Security. He's a former police officer, former gang investigator, former FBI special agent. Our moderator, Ron Christie, analyst for BBC World News, the founder and CEO of Christie Strategies, an author, veteran senior advisor in politics and in the George W. Bush White House. And I'm proud to say he was a fall 2019 fellow at the Center for the Political Future. So, Ron, I'm going to turn this over to you. Bob, thank you so very, very much. And good afternoon, uh, everyone in the Southland and watching around the United States and around the world. It is a privilege uh, to be back uh, here at USC and what I would say are very challenging times. And I trust all of you are well and you're healthy. And we have a very important discussion that I'm very much looking forward to over the course of the next hour that will continue in the days and weeks and months that follow. And at this juncture of American history, I believe that we stand at a critical moment, and I would call this a trifecta, if you will. For many months, many of us have been sheltering at home. We've stayed indoors. We've followed the CDC and scientific guidelines and tried to ensure that family and loved ones were protected from the coronavirus. And sadly, more than 2 million Americans have contracted this virus. And here in Washington, D.C., I can tell you that a majority of the folks here in Washington, the 500 people who have died, have been African-American. Nationwide, 20% of those who have contracted and and died from the coronavirus have been African-American. 
The next part of this trajectory is our economy. Our economy has cratered in the last several months dealing with this crisis. We have nearly 20 million or one out of four of our fellow Americans who are out of work, who are looking for work and are in dire economic circumstances. And then the topic of our conversation today, the senseless killing of Mr. George Floyd in Minneapolis, Minnesota. And words cannot express the sorrow, the anger, and the uncertainty and frustration that many Americans feel as we try to come to grips with what happens in Minneapolis and how we can move on from that tragic event. And while justice will undoubtedly be served, can his death, as tragic as it was, lead to positive steps, positive changes for us here in America? And as Bob has already articulated, we have an amazing panel uh, to delve through these very interesting and very significant questions and over the course of the next hour. And so since Bob has already introduced them, I think we should jump right in and get into it and open this debate. And for all of our panelists who are here present, I'd like to ask you in a minute or less, brevity is always more than less, on a question of race in America, do you think America is better or worse as a country, as it relates to race relations, than we were 10 years ago? And Bob, I recognize that, that your time is, is, is scant for this conversation, so I'm going to start with you first. I think that race relations in this country are, in many ways, fundamentally better than they were when I was growing up. What we have seen in the last period of years was that the notion that Barack Obama's election signaled that America was transformed turned out to be untrue. There is clearly racism in the country. There is clearly systemic racism. But I will tell you what, I am very encouraged by what I have seen in the last few weeks. This has not simply been a protest movement that has been fueled by African Americans. It's been a protest movement that has been fueled by them, by their white fellow citizens, by Hispanics, by people of every race and national origin. So that encourages me and leads me to think that we can actually make progress. Thank you, Bob, very, very much. Uh, Dr. Earl, let's go to you. What are your thoughts? That's a very challenging question. I mean, I'm a product of the 60s. I remember those riots in 67. I would say the difference between then and now, growing up, and a product of busing, that many of the things that were thought and not said are now being said because people feel emboldened by it. Much like the 60s, the civil rights effort that took place at that time was a collection of people minorities and non-minorities who participated in that. I think things are somewhat worse now because people are, I'm certainly in greater fear now as an adult than I was as a kid in the 60s when I go somewhere. Uh, I never had a fear of of people doing things. And I'm going to say this, I don't know necessarily that people who had those feelings have gotten worse. I think cell phone technology has gotten better. and, And because of social media, we're seeing these things happen. So whereas when I grew up, we said they would happen and there was no corroboration of proof. Now there is corroboration. We are seeing it. And I'm encouraged like Bob is over the last several weeks that this has been a multi-ethnic coalition that's decided that hate and racism is not going to be tolerated and people are going to respond to it. Thank you very, very much. Chief, let's turn to you down in the Lone Star state of Texas What are your thoughts, sir? And thank you very much for your service, and thank you for joining us. Thank you, everybody. It's an honor and a privilege to be here. And I can say that as an immigrant and uh, a person whose English is my second language, 
things are worse. With uh, the election of Barack Obama, I think there was a lot of great, a lot of hope that the ceiling had been uh, had been broken through his election. But I think what happened with his uh, presidency it exposed the underbelly of racism in this country. And since uh, his departure from office, what we have seen and what I've been telling communities, especially communities of faith, what we now accept as normal behavior, the the way that the highest offices in this elected officials talk about people of color, the broad brushes where people that are from uh, south of the border were rapists and were murderers, or if you're African-American, you're, you're, you're thugs, is unconscionable. And then when you think about communities of faith, how they have failed to stand up and to call out. I like telling communities of faith that God's watching. You know, we can fool our neighbors, our friends, our pastors. We can fool our coworkers, but you can't fool God. And God's only is going to hold us accountable, not just for what we said, but what we failed to say. Now, having said all that, after the last couple of weeks, I've spent a lot of time with the community out here, marching, listening, getting yelled at, but actually connecting with a lot of folks. And all of a sudden, I think that there's a new reawakening that the death of George Floyd has brought to our country. So I'm hopeful that maybe we've reached a watershed moment and that all Americans are ready to get back to loving one another and judging each other through the prism of our individual actions and hearts and the content of our hearts, and not through the color of our skin, nation of origin, religion we that we choose to follow if we follow and all the other things. So I'm hopeful but only if we keep the momentum that we've seen the last two weeks. Thank you, Chief. Assemblymember, let me, let me start with you. Welcome. Thank you for your service in the 54th Assembly District in California, the half a million constituents that you represent. Thank you. And how do you think things have changed in the last, say, decade? Are things getting better or worse as it relates to race relations in America? First, I want to say thank you. I, I am a fellow Trojan, so I love being on any kind of call with fellow Trojans. Secondly, I think over the course of the past decade, we've seen some setbacks as it relates to race relations. I mean, we're here in a progressive state called California, where we're not as enlightened as we claim we are. You know, we were the state that passed Proposition 209. We were the state that passed 187. Those were propositions that were race-baiting at best. We were the state that implemented three strikes. We are the state that saw a exponential increase in our mass incarceration system. We are the state that had to have the feds step in and say that our operation of our state prisons was inhumane. We are the state that had to implement AB 109, where we realigned populations from prison to the county. So we, we are also, you know, in different parts of the state, you know, we have an audit going where we're auditing different county sheriff departments. There was a Measure R that just passed, I think, this last election around how we were going to look at our jail system in Los Angeles County. All of those things are things that are happening in this great progressive state called California. And the subtext of all of those initiatives and bills Um, and decisions, the subtext are race and class, you know, poverty. And we have not done a very good job of being thoughtful and being honest about the complexities that are embedded in all of these conversations. There's a reason why 40% of all homeless folks in LA County are black. There's a reason why there's such a push 
around housing and gentrification because of the fear that the only asset, the only bit of wealth that many black Americans have is in their property, which is being pushed out to non-black communities and to corporations. There's a reason why there's a groundswell around defunding the police and actually honestly looking at the criminal justice system. I'm sure many of us on this Zoom have seen stats or have heard someone talk about the statistics of being black and being tethered to some element of the criminal justice system. If it's policing, being pulled over, if it's the courts, if it's probation, if it's parole, if it's prison or jail. Those are not made up statistics, um, but we have not needed to confront them. Um, and so George Floyd has afforded us this moment to get honest about the fact that these injustices are real and they're perpetuated mostly on black Americans. And I don't know if we would have had these conversations without coronavirus, you know, and George Floyd, because we had a pandemic that we're still in, where all of a sudden we were getting data about the disproportionate number of black and brown folks that were contracting and dying from coronavirus. And so the vulnerabilities in our public health system with frontline workers and who those folks are and folks living in poverty just funneled their way into a conversation around the criminal justice system and how it's perpetuated on black Americans. Well, thank you for your leadership and thank you for your thoughts. And let me just embarrass you by saying I was checking you out on YouTube earlier today. And if you want to see a heartwarming video presentation look at the assembly member when she's being sworn into office and she's there with her husband and her parents. That that was a touching, touching video. So thank you for oh, being with us today. Thank you. Thank you. You know, it's so hard to get my mother to fly from Chicago to California to participate in anything as it relates to my work. So it was a pleasure to have her come out. Folks, check it out. It was really, really cool. And last and certainly not least, my friend, my mentor, Donna Brazil, the first African-American woman to lead a major presidential campaign, of course, when she led the campaign for then Vice President Al Gore. Donna Brazil, what's on your menu? Thank you so much. And thank you, Bob, and thank uh, the entire team for convening this uh, session today. As you can imagine, growing up in the segregated South at a time when the country was really trying to grapple with racism, I can personally attest that we have made incremental steps toward that more perfect union. But sadly today, we're still making steps. I think it's time that we use this moment, this inflection point to make monumental steps. We need transformational change. I've seen so much in my 60 years. Yes, Bob, I'm finally 60. Bob has known me. <laughs> Poor Bob, Bob, Bob. Shrummy has known me since I was in my early 20s. And he has mentored me and he's been like a big brother to me. But we, we still have so far to go. You know, just a few weeks ago, the mayor of D.C. appointed me to serve as co-chair of the equity and vulnerability community in, in terms of COVID and reopening Washington, D.C., our nation's capital. And in that capacity... Of course, I had to use my voice to speak up for those who at times have nobody at the table. And it reminded me of that period after Katrina when I just had to simply explain to people how poor people live, poor people, how they live, the humanity of those who struggle from paycheck to paycheck, 
the dignity of those who go to work every day and yet when they come home, they still can't make ends meet. And yes, trying to explain that if you live on the S line or you're catching the 50 bus or the D line, you are in a hot zone. There's no PPEs for bus drivers. There's no sanitation. There's no hand sanitizers for those getting on the bus and touching. And yet people kept saying, well, but, but you have health insurance. No, they don't have telemedicine. They don't, they don't have computers at home. They don't have primary care physicians. And so when George Floyd was murdered, I was on Fox News the next day. And here I am, a black woman speaking once again for a black man on the ground saying he wanted his mom, his dead mom, to help him. He was calling out and he said, sir, sir. And it just, it brought me to tears because it reminded me of when my dad came back home from service. My dad, 6'4". My dad came home and once again, he became a boy after serving his country in war, four bronze stars, a UN medal for valor. And he came home and he was a boy. He was not a man. He was never seen as a man. And so that anger that comes from hearing that talk over and over again, and now I've been doing the talk for the last 50 years of my life. I'm still doing the talk. We, we have to eradicate racism. We have to renounce white supremacy. We have to deal with these structural issues so that people like me don't have to explain how poor people live, how marginalized people survive, and why the color of my skin. People look at me and think, wow, who is she? They don't know my talent. They don't know my abilities because they're too busy looking at this skin. And so we have a lot of work to do, and I'm glad that we're doing this call because we all have to take this work up, not just those of us who are black or people of color. I, I need my white friends and my white allies to help us with the words, the language, the narrative. The narrative, Ron, you know the narrative. I do. The narrative that says that, yes, we are capable, we are able, we have talent. God gave us characters and beliefs. We need help in this hour, because I don't want to wait till I'm 70 or 80 or God, you know, if I make it to my grandmother's age, I don't want to keep having that talk. I want people to start listening to us. Donna, thank you so much. And your emotions and your passions, along with your fellow panelists really come through and we're really at an inflection point in our country. And I, and I, I want to start Chief Acevedo, with you, because I, I used the 10-year the look-back period about race in America instead of things getting better, things getting worse, because we've had Trayvon Martin. We've had a number of young Black men who have died in rather suspicious circumstances. And so for you as a police chief, do you believe that these incidents are isolated? Do you think that they are more indicative of systemic racism in the United States? And most importantly, how do you, as a chief of police in the city of Houston, make sure that your officers are trained such that people of color don't feel they're being disproportionately discriminated against due to the color of their skin? Oh, that's a multi-pronged question. I know. I, I'm bad about this. Yeah, I'm a lawyer. Okay. I, I can't help it. Uh, there any lawyer here can build me that's an objection. Anyway, so, yeah, I, I, let me just first say this, you know, what, uh, because people of color, when we put on this uniform, when I'm the police chief in a major American city, when I take it off, a lot of people don't see 
a police chief. What they see is a Hispanic. And I can mm-hmm. tell you, even as a police chief, my wife teased me when a couple of occasions people have asked me for water at an event or coffee, or I've had a keys thrown at me leaving a restaurant thinking that I was a valet as a police chief in a major city. And I'm a pretty far out there police chief, so my community post people uh, know me. But I think it speaks as to the prism in which people see co- uh, people of color sometimes. They don't realize that we have doctors, lawyers, scientists, astronauts, uh, police officers, that we can aspire to be the very best as everyone else. And the fact that without wearing a uniform, that looks like a valet uniform, I'm being thrown keys by a white man, tells you that the stereotypes, whether they're conscious or subconscious, and the prejudice and racism still alive and well. Having said that, let me say that policing isn't as bad as some of our greatest critics uh, say it is. And I think it's really important that we speak about doing everything we can to get rid of the crappy cops that are out there. I know they're out there. I've had to get rid of about 160 officers in three and a half years here in Houston. The good thing is that when I first became a chief 13 years ago in Austin, it seemed like no one ever wanted to get rid of a bad cop. I got beat up by my own cops. Now I'm getting thanked by cops for getting rid of bad cops. So I just want to make sure that people realize things have gotten better, but they're still not where they need to be. We need to bring the same focus to policing. This is our Vietnam. Policing is never beautiful, right? It's never pretty. Overcoming resistance is always ugly, no matter how justified it is. It's an ugly proposition. But due to the cell phones and everything else, we're bringing a very ugly profession to the forefront, which makes it really important for us to be thoughtful in the way that we uh, discuss these issues. So we've got to keep training. We've got to have 18,000 police departments can't have 18,000 sets of policies that relates I could not believe, I'm talking to my activists here, and I'm going to shut up because I know there's a lot to cover, <laughs> but talking to my activists, I could not believe, because I couldn't understand, why didn't they arrest those officers right away? Everybody right. knows that when you put your knee on a man's neck for eight minutes and 46 seconds, who's telling you he can't breathe. I couldn't leave my knee on uh, a, a bit down on my knee for 846 right now, even my life depended on it. So that took a lot of effort from from former Officer Chauvin. But here's what my actors could believe. They were angry that an arrest wasn't made right away. And I was shocked to find out in 2020, they still allow placing your knee on somebody's neck outside of a life and death situation. That's the problem. We've got to get American policing, when it comes to these critical policies, have to be 18,000 standard standardized policies, because what happened in Minneapolis has impacted the world, and we can no longer have a hodgepodge of policies that are not 21st century policing and good policies. It's time to have a national conversation and national action, and we are going to make sure as police chiefs that we hold Congress's feet to the fire on both sides of the aisle, because both sides are afraid of labor, and that's why we haven't seen the changes that we need here in the United States. Chief, thank you very, very much. Uh, Bob, let me go back over to you. And, you know, so much of the the reading that I've been seeing and so much of the commentary on television, you hear folks say this reminds them of 1968. And you look, obviously, at April 4th, 1968, with the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King. You look in, in early June of the assassination of RF Kennedy. Are there parallels that you think that we can draw from what happened in 1968 to where we are now, or is this an entirely different situation in your view? And I'll also toss that to Donna as well, and Dr. Earl as well. I think the situation is entirely different. And I think the big difference is that 
a candidate was able to ride a so-called law and order issue to the presidency in 1968 because the unrest, the protests, uh, and there were also protests against the Vietnam War, were resisted by a majority of the country. We're a different country now, and if you look at the data and the public opinion polls that have come out, there is enormous support for reforming and restructuring the police, for doing the kinds of things Chief Acevedo was saying. And I think anybody who tries to exploit this situation to advance their political career, uh, especially at a national level, is going to be sorely disappointed on November 3rd. So I think it's, I think it's a very different situation. 68, you know, had Dr. King lived, had Robert Kennedy lived, we can't know what the outcome would have been. I think it would have been a more hopeful one. Thank you. Earl or Donna? So I'm going to say I have to agree with Bob. It's definitely different now. You know, look, as the legislator said previously, the progressive state of California, let's face it, that was a year after we had the Mulford Act enacted here in California. We are a not non-carry state, not because we're so progressive, but because the Black Panther Party was armed. And Assemblymember Mumford went to Governor Reagan because the Black Panther Party had been deemed a terrorist organization at that point by the FBI and carried forth this legislation because they didn't want black folks to be, have rifles and shotguns out in public. But I want to go to the, uh, your other point about 1968 and now. The difference, obviously, and the reason we're having this conversation today is because of race and policing. You know, Minneapolis Police Department should have been the poster child for reform. They had an openly gay and indigenous female chief, who I happen to know. They had a review from the Obama administration's DOJ department. They had a settlement to receive training to not place people in the prone position as they did with Mr. Floyd. And they currently have a black police chief. And look where we are. So I want to give commend our Chief Acevedo for removing those cops, because there's a human element to this that we're all not paying attention to. And it's about those officers. And the fact that you're able to remove them, again, back to the point of why we're here, as long as we recruit from the human race for police departments, we're going to have problems and we need to be able to eliminate them. It needs to be harder to become a police officer and easier to be a black man in America than it is right now. Excellent point. Let me, let me move on because I, you know, time is just moving along and I want to make sure that we get to as many of the the students as we can, but uh, Earl, I'm going to stick. With, I'm going to stick with you, given that you're a national security and a homeland security expert. Looking at what's going on in Seattle, and we've seen that a group of people have taken over a six-block radius in Seattle, and they've said that you've left the United States, and now you're in Chaz, right? Do you think this is a one-off, or do you think that we're going to see more of these in Portland, in California, and other communities around the country? Well, first, I want to make sure everybody understands some of the facts that they're not hearing about. The police chief was in that station this morning. He's been met with those protesters and demonstrators and had conversations. There are talks about how they're going to transition into having conversations with the people that are there. So I don't know that we'll see more. I I don't think so. But again, who knew we would be having this conversation today? But I don't think you're going to see more. But there is an ongoing conversation about reform. Look, People are tired of police departments saying we need more training. We need the training. It starts with the elected officials who select these chiefs. Chiefs need to be held accountable and officers need to be held accountable. And we need to have communities engaged with those departments. And I think that's what you're going to see in Seattle and you'll see across the country. 
And this is a perfect pivot point to you, Assemblywoman. You have been very active uh, from your time in the Assembly and to the current day about finding ways of how the community can be engaged in taking care of one another. And recently, you introduced Assembly Bill 2054 that calls for community members rather than the police to respond to certain calls for help. Can you share what your vision is and why you introduced that legislation and how you think that that might help defuse some of the tensions that we see not only around the Southland, but around the United States? Sure. So I want to say, you know, I ne- who would have thought that all of this would have happened this year? It's a confluence of some very strange events. I certainly expected this to be a sleeper bill this year when January 2020 rolled around, and we were going to hope that it would get through the legislature with minimal visibility, just because I was afraid. Um, if you read behind the lines, it's, I think, pretty radical. So the fact that all of this is happening around it is pretty amazing. It's AB 2054. It's called the Crisis Act Community Response Initiative to Emergency Situations. The premise is that you do not need to have a level two, a level 10 solution uh, to level two problems. It says community um, organizations who are vetted, who are trained, who have credibility in their um, communities should be able to be considered and activated as emergency response teams. You know, law and people who decide to join the force, I don't think are recruited. They're not interested in becoming police officers because they want to deal with mental health issues, because they want to deal with poverty, because they want to deal with addiction, because they want to deal with homelessness. I don't think that's why folks decide to become police officers. That's why they decide to become teachers or social workers or mental health experts or gang interventionists. So this says, why don't we use the expertise and the credibility that we have in our communities to respond to level one, two, three, four emergency situations? Because we also know that there are a number of vulnerable populations that don't want to call the police. They would prefer to call someone else, but the only number we know is 911. And so if we have enough fortitude and constitution to take a chance on calling 911, then we're afraid of what we're going to get. Are we going to be shamed about our domestic partner uh, relationship if we're calling about a violent incident? Because we're going to be judged about this relationship. Are we going to be shamed because of where we live, because of the friends that or the family members that we have in our space who might look like, you know, who are being profiled to look like, you know, they might be in a gang or have some sort of criminal record? Are we afraid that if the police come that they're going to start peeking around and trying to put together some scenario that will allow them to arrest us or deport us or detain us. So we end up having less public safety because so many communities are afraid. They either don't want to be considered a snitch or they just don't want to have to deal with the drama of having law enforcement come into their lives. And so they are denied. They are denied public safety and protection because of that. So this bill says, let's take some of that out of the equation so that the police can actually do what they have been trained and what they should be doing. And we can come up with other ways to protect ourselves. I was at a rally in my district um, just last weekend and a young brother got on the microphone and he said, he said that very same thing. He said, we know how to protect our own. We know who's doing wrong. We know how to go to somebody and say, hey, you need to chill or I'm watching you. We know how to handle our business. 
but we don't have that infrastructure to do so. And so AB 2054 would allow that to happen in the state of California. Now, of course, it needs to be passed, but it also needs to be funded. Thank you very much. Two quick questions, and I'm going to go back to the chief and then go to Donna Brazil. And then Erica Maldonado, thank you once again for pulling this group together. Uh, We'll open it up to the students in the greater USC community. Chief, I want to go to you because I'm so intrigued by calls across the country of let's disband the police department. Let's defund the police department. What would you say to our viewers here today who think that, you know, maybe this is a very good idea? Good idea, bad idea, or is there some sort of middle ground that can be accommodated? Well, I think that it's a false equivalence to say we have to defund the police in order to provide the social services, the economic opportunities, the health opportunities, the mental health opportunities, the everything that's needed, especially in communities of color and poor communities. I think it's a, it is not an either or proposition. When COVID struck and it impacted North, South, East, West, rich, poor, white, black, all of a sudden the Congress could find trillions of dollars. Yeah. So they can do it for COVID. It's time for them to be able to do it for communities of color and poor communities, including poor white communities, because there's a lot of poor white people in this country and a lot of people don't talk about them. I think that's why there's so much anger in these poor white communities. But it does disappointingly impact communities of color. Let me just say to the assembly member, what's going to happen as you, we rarely go to these calls for people in uh, psychological distress, where the first time we go, they end up being shot by the police. What happens if you look at the history, police have gone and dealt with people time and again and progressively things have gotten worse because we have nowhere to take them. There are no beds. There's no bed space. Our cops are trained. Even to this day, come to Houston. I I invite you all to Houston. We have a mental health program here where we respond with our mental health professionals. We actually don't even go to calls. A lot of times those calls are handled by operators that are trained counselors at at our center. The problem is we're not even arresting people for low-level misdemeanors when they're in mental crisis. We're taking them to the center. They're there for 24 hours, and they're back out on the streets. We're seeing the negative outcomes too often between police and the community, not because the police didn't know how to respond, but because the law of averages being what it is, sooner or later you're going to have a bad outcome because we're not investing in what we need to invest, places for people to live, places for people to get treatment. Places for people to actually get not just uh, psych treatment or addiction treatment, because what came first, the addiction or the mental health? They're interrelated. So there's a lot of work to be done. But I'm telling you right now, especially to the more progressive members of legislative bodies, come and ride with me. I'll take you to 1.2 million calls, disproportionate community of colors. If you try to give them less police instead of less bad police, you are going to get tremendous pushback. Huffington Post just had a poll today. We're at African-American communities across the board. People don't want less policing. They want good policing, and they want they, they should have both good policing and all the other things. Why should they have to pick between their safety and the social services and economic opportunities, educational opportunities that they deserve like everybody else? There's plenty of wealth in this country to deal with all of those issues. Thank you, Chief. And finally, Donna, before we go to the Q&A with the students and the parents, you're a political expert. And looking at where we are right now, it did not seem that race and race relations would be that much in the forefront for the presidential election. And now it seems that it's all everyone's talking about. How do you think what happened with Mr. George Floyd's tragic death a few weeks back will impact the 2020 presidential election? Well, first of all, thanks for the question. I want to agree with the chief in terms of 
the allocation of resources, we've seen police budgets skyrocket because policemen are social workers. They are healthcare providers. They're doing everything that in, in normal societies, uh, we should have a, an abundance of resources to provide for the education, welfare, uh, affordable housing, and, and much, much more for our community. So I agree that we should not be out here calling for defunding the police, but reimagine what 21st century policing is to provide those resources across the board so that we have stronger structures within our community to help all of our families, et cetera. Race has been a subtext of every election in our history. Everyone, everyone. I do believe that it will be a subtext of, of 2020 in large part because the president seemed not, he, he seemed in eight, uh, well, I'm going to try to be generous now with my words. He's incapable of leading us in this discussion. Rather than show empathy toward those who are protesting to talk to the families, work with members of the Congressional Black Caucus. The president has used this as a moment to, I think, inflame tensions and not try to calm tensions. So, yes, it will be a part of the conversation, the dialogue. You saw how Joe Biden responded. He responded by going within his community in Wilmington, and then he went to Philadelphia to give a speech, and then he flew down to Houston to comfort the Floyd family. At the same time, you know, addressing some of these structural issues, racism, et cetera, and the president, almost the mirror opposite. So it will be a part of the conversation. It will be part of the presidential cycle. But what worries me is that many of the young people who risked their lives so that they could have a future, who stood up and marched, whether it's down to Lafayette Park here in Washington, D.C., all over the country, those young people must be convinced that the political leaders are listening to them. The political leaders are willing to take the change. And like the young people marching, they will have the courage to risk their own political futures by standing on something that will bring about the kind of structural changes and meaningful changes that the, the American people are seeking at this time. I want to agree with Bob. Bob said it right. The country has changed. I, I'm surprised by the poll numbers. Uh, just in terms of from 2014, when we first heard Black Lives Matter to today, the number of people who have a favorable view of the Black Lives Matter movement has increased threefold. So it's already changing. We got to get ahead of that change or be a part of that change. There's no going back. It's only going forward. Thank you, Donna. And thank you, panel, for your insights. And now it's time for the questions. And the first question comes from uh, Yaika von Bemel Rice, who says to all the panelists, so you can all decide which one of you wants to answer this first. Her question is, as an ally to people of color, what are tangible actions that we can take to help address systemic racism? Robert Trump, let me go to you. Well, I'm going to give a short answer. Vote. I think voting is very critical. I think it is. I, I'm very encouraged by someone like LeBron James organizing a movement to make sure that young African-Americans are registered and that they actually vote. And the other thing that's very important, I think, is to examine our own attitudes, to think about how we think about all of this. Are we indifferent? Do we get engaged? Because in many different ways, in all of our workplaces, we face these challenges. They're not challenges of policing, but they're challenges quite often of, of unconscious prejudice. And so I think if you really want to help, 
you A, got to vote, but you B, got to make sure that you're doing the right things in your own life. Chief, I've got a question for you. I'm scrolling down in the chat box, so I'm going to wait for you, but I'm going to go to the assembly member, and then I'm going to go to uh, my man, Dr. Earl, to see what you both think that we can do to end systemic racism. And I know, Donna, you're going to jump on this as well, so let's all get into it. (laughs) So Dr. King has a really great quote that I've been leaning on. He says, every society has its protectors of the status quo and its fraternities of the indifferent who are notorious for sleeping through revolutions. In order to survive, we have to stay awake, stay vigilant, take up new tasks, and face the challenge of change. So I would say to allies, ask yourself why you're so invested in protecting the status quo. I would ask allies and comrades to listen and learn from others to do some of your own research. There are a ton of books out there, movies out there, documentaries out there that are probably speaking to someone else's experience that you know nothing about. Now would be a great time to invest in your own education and pick up one of those books or watch one of those documentaries to learn. And then I think it's really important for allies to talk amongst themselves. You don't have to reach out to your only black or brown friend. Why don't you talk with some of your own allies and dig into the biases that are percolating within your own community to help you have some honest reflection? Because sometimes it's hard to talk to someone who doesn't come from your community because you're afraid of the judgment. So step outside and into your own space to have those kind of introspective moments. Sydney, thank you. Dr. Southers, let me go to you. And and again, in the interest of brevity, I'm going to echo those remarks. And I'm going to say this because I happen to know the person who posed the question. And Ilka, thank you for phoning in here. I'm going to say now as someone who is African-American and spent many years in law enforcement at every level of government, this is not about being anti-police. It's more about being Mm anti-racist. And and I think that's the basis of what we need to do at this point. Thank you, sir. Chief, I've got two questions that I'm going to to roll into one for you. <laughs> you know, I, I think I keep hitting you with these multi-pronged questions. I Objection. <laughs> Compound. <laughs> yeah. Trying to confuse the cop. So the, the first one, it says, the recent tragedies and protests have shined a light on the influence and the role of police unions on prevention of police reform and perpetuating qualified immunity. How do we work or change with police unions to make sure that police officers are held accountable for their actions? And what change do you think we can make in light of the recent tragedy? Well, I think that uh, that's a great question. I think one, one of the things we have to look at is we have to, a lot of folks think it's the police department that is negotiating the agreement with the police unions when in fact it's the elected officials and elected body that is negotiating that agreement and, and quite frankly uh, are the ones that are going to make the final decisions, not the police chiefs. One of the things we have to look at right away in California, I think the statute of limitations is one year from the date of discovery to actually take uh, action. In Texas, it's six months from the date of occurrence. Think about that. If, mm-hmm. if after six months, you don't, if, if we need to have a national, again, national standard where we should have six months from the date of discovery. We should not reward police officers or police organizations by creating a arbitrary statute of limitations on misconduct. And so that's something we need to look at across because all 18,000 police departments have an impact on legitimacy and the, and, and the belief that there's legitimacy. So we need to look at that nationwide. And the other thing is that we have to make sure that the contracts that are signed are more about pay and benefits 
and protecting the process so we don't because the, the opposite of not giving officers rights is some some of these small departments remember during the civil rights movement police departments and throughout history police departments have been used by the majority as a political arm whether it's to go back and bring uh, slaves back when we had slavery in this country or that was to beat up on Martin Luther King's uh, movement that thanks to his movement in 1964 would have never happened. That wouldn't be sitting here as his police chief. So it's a balance. It's You have to balance uh, protecting good police officers from the political influence of politicians. And you have to protect good police officers from unions that have so much power that they actually protect and keep bad cops on the job. So we have to be thoughtful. We have to bring transparency to these contracts. And maybe we need to start requiring the publishing of the proposed contracts across the political, you know, location, whether it's a city or state or uh, whatever, so the public can have uh, full disclosure and have the ability to weigh in before they're ratified by the uh, body that's negotiating it. So there's a lot that can be done. Let me follow up on something that you said at the outset of our discussion, uh, when you said that you felt in many ways, you know, this is the Vietnam for police officers right now, and that, that you have systematically eliminated what you termed as crappy cops who work in the Houston Police Department. Your words, Chief, not mine, but words I might use anyway. How do you do that? How do you identify what you would call a bad apple in a police department? And how hard is it for you to remove that officer from the line of duty? And can I ask and add to this for the Chief? Can you also talk about POBAR, the Police Officer Bill of Rights? Because oftentimes, you know, the unions use that as a third rail against every single person. If you decide to touch this, you're done. So can you sort of talk a little bit about what POBAR is and how it's used and how to fix it? Well, I've been out of California since 2007, but but my recollection was the government code sections 3300 to the 33- 20 or something like that. Peace Officer Bill of Rights is actually a double-edged sword because it requires officers to speak, to actually cooperate. So, But the problem is that it used to have a three-year statute of limitations when I used to work in internal affairs with the California Heart Patrol, and the legislature, not the California Heart Patrol, reduced it to one year. So again, police chiefs and police executives and the police profession takes a lot of flack or criticism sometimes for measures that were actually enacted by the elected officials. In Texas, we have arbitration. The arbitration can sometimes be just that, arbitrary, because some arbitrators want to split the baby half uh, all the time. You can almost predict the outcome of an arbitration based on the history of an arbitrator. I believe that we should have a, a system of administrative law judges that aren't that are going to be paid by the government who work for the people and don't have to worry about winning favor with either side, and they'll focus on the law. I've been a chief in Texas since 2007. Uh, sadly, I've had to fire a lot of police officers, and my success rate in arbitration is about 975. When I got here, they teased me, and the union said it's a 50-50 proposition. But what they don't understand is that this chief actually goes to every hearing. This chief actually testifies. We probably need to make the chief executives get out of the comfort zone, get out of the 16th floor of headquarters, and actually go to the arbitrations and actually stand up for their actions. And as a result, we've been very successful in arbitration. But there's a lot that can be done. A lot that's not being done, but I think the most that can be done is demand transparency in the laws that are being passed by the legislatures and by the city councils and then the agreements that are being signed by elected bodies that in some cities you have to give up all your statements of all the witnesses before the officer even gets interviewed. So so here's all the evidence. I mean, are you kidding me? 
And that's something that I've inherited here that I'm hoping to be able to change. I didn't have that in my last city. And so we've got to make sure we have robust systems in place to get rid of the bad cops. And I think it's time for unions to not stand in the way of those efforts. So our time is re- is getting a little bit short. And I want to throw the, the last question here to Earl and Donna before the panel comes back with their final comments. And it's a comment and it says, my daughter, a USC grad, and my college student sons have in the last few days opened my eyes to my implicit bias and my complicity in the system that gives advantages to whites in America. They have forced me with simply having the conversation. I'm listening to you, panelists. I am listening to everyone. I am protesting racial injustice, and I will vote in November. I ask this to Donna and to Earl. Do you believe that the events that we've seen in the last two weeks really have opened the eyes of many Americans who sort of took their world for granted, if you will, and will this change stick? Donna Brazil. Well, I hope it will stick. I've had plenty of conversations with my friends and colleagues, many of whom I've worked with over the last 30 years, whether it was during voter registration campaigns, electoral politics in general, or even in corporate America. But most importantly, the colleagues that I've really been anxious to talk to are those in the media, anchors, my colleagues on Fox News, my former colleagues on CNN, ABC, and reminded them that they have a responsibility at this moment to educate. Many people don't know the history of this country. They don't know the history of slavery, that it was 244 years, followed by over 100 years of Jim Crow. Mm -hmm. And the fact that in my lifetime, I am the first person in my family, and we can trace our history all the way back to Jamestown. I'm the first my generation, they have full voting rights. And yet every two years, every four years, we have to constantly fight for access to the ballot. So the most important thing we can, we can do at this moment, whether you're a chief of police, an assemblywoman, a professor, a Bob who's a guru in many ways about <laughs> everything, is to educate and to inspire others to change, to really do the work. Do the work that Dr. King and his generation accomplished and do the work that they did. Do the work for our future generations. As I've said over and over again, when Shirley Chisholm taught me years ago as a young activist and organizer, she said, I want you to fight to get a seat at the table. But when you get there, tell everyone to scoot over and make room for others. We have to continue to do this work because clearly we haven't arrived at that moment yet. Well, as a matter of personal privilege, I've known you for over 25 years, and you have definitely scooted over and pulled up a chair for me, for which I am so eternally grateful for everything that you've done for me, Donna. So thank you. And now it's my turn to scooch and get another chair to help folks who are younger than me. Thank you. With this, I want to hear from all of you as we started out in a minute or less, and so it's 357, so I really do mean a minute or less, that... (laughs) As we come to the conclusion of our conversation and we look at the tragedy of George Floyd's death, what positive steps, what positive influence do you all think that we can draw from this that will bind us together stronger as Americans and cognizant of our motto in this country, e pluribus unum, out of many, one? Assembly member, let me start with you first. 
so many things coursing through my brain. I think it's important to acknowledge that white privilege is real. And when you hear that, not to get defensive, but to be reflective and think about what that really means and how you fit into it. I think it's also okay to acknowledge that we all have implicit bias. It doesn't mean we are bad people. It doesn't mean that we are racist, but it does mean that we should be checking it on the regular and figuring out how it impacts how we live and the decisions that we make. Because ultimately, decisions that we make are impacting someone else. And oftentimes, because of our bias, they are detrimentally impacting someone else. But as COVID showed us, we are inextricably linked. We are linked to one another. And your pain, your death, your need to be an essential worker is going to have an impact on me. Just like this moment in time with our criminal justice system, it is impacting all of us more than many of us realized. Thank you. Chief Acevedo. There's so much I can say. First of all, I I want to tell the community on on behalf of the Floyd family, I've had the privilege of spending time with them for the last week here in Houston. Their anger has turned into great hope. And I think great comfort because of the collective response of the American people of all walks of life. Please don't lose the momentum. Keep demanding action. But let me just say something briefly on on behalf of the American police officers, the 800,000 men and women in blue. I've been a cop for 34 years. When I started, we didn't have this. If we had these 34 years ago, people would appreciate just how many great police officers we have today, how far we've come today compared to the past. So I will close with saying, hold our feet to the fire when we don't get it right. But please lift up good police officers. I don't want them to think that it's us against them, especially against poor communities of color. Because what I know more than ever, that the communities that need us most are the ones that support us most. And that because of socioeconomics and institutional racism, the history of systemic prejudice in this country are truly communities of color which is why the defunding movement, you're not going to get support from the people that need us most. They want good policing, they admire good policing, and what they want is less bad policing and equal opportunity. Thank you all for having me on today. Thank you, Chief, and thank you so very, very much for your service and all you do to continue to protect the American people. Dr. Southers. Ron, again, I want to echo the Chief's comments, and I want to thank you and Bob for having me on today. I've had people reach out to us from around the world asking, you know, what can they do to help and and how can they be supportive of what we're doing? I'm hopeful that this is going to be real change. The only thing I will say in closing is that I've seen police officers around the country kneeling. You know, if only those cops had been willing to take a knee four years ago when Colin Kaepernick took his, they could have ushered in an era of radical change of the way we're policed instead of deeming a nonviolent gesture un-American. Now maybe they understand, maybe we'll do something. Sir, thank you very, very much for joining us. Donna Brazil. Let us remember the sacrifice of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and so many others, too many to name. They're not here to do the work. We're here to complete the work. So let's recommit ourselves for equal justice under the law, and continue to do God's work. I'm a prisoner of hope. I know tomorrow is going to get better because we all collectively will lead, will lead that conversation and lead that march. 
So thank you for allowing me to participate. I want to say to my brother, Bob, who, who has helped me write so many, many press releases, slogans, radio ads, bots. Bob, thank you for believing in me. And so that when we went out and opened those doors, Bob was one who made sure that those doors never shut. So thank you, Bob, and thank you, USC, for this wonderful conversation. Thank you, Donna. And I'm going to end the same way that we began with uh, closing remarks from Bob Shrum. But first and foremost, I want to thank Chief Acevedo. I want to thank uh, Sydney Kamwanger Dove. I want to thank Donna Brazil. I want to thank Earl Southers. And I want to thank Bob Shrum. And I want to thank USC Dornsife for putting this together and in the Center for the Political Future and allowing us to have this very critical conversation at this very important junction in American history. And as you can see the sign over my left shoulder, fight on. Bob, I send this back to you. <laughs> Donna, thank you. You're way too generous. And it was a privilege to be your colleague in several of those campaigns. You know, it's been 57 years last month since President Kennedy proposed the Civil Rights Bill and said this is primarily a moral issue, as old as the scriptures and as clear as the Constitution. I think that sums up the imperative that we have to pursue in days that we should not even be living through. This should have been resolved 20, 30, 50, 60 years ago when when we began to have a consciousness about civil rights. But we now have a defining moment. Let's seize the defining moment. Let's not waste the defining moment. And in the spirit of what the chief said, let's look for real change, not psychic satisfaction. They're very different things in politics. We want real change We don't just want the psychic satisfaction of standing up and complaining about something. Amen. Thanks, Bob. And thank you all for joining us this afternoon. And we certainly look forward to many, many more important conversations with all of you. You can please, of course, join our website where you can sign up for our weekly newsletter so that you can never miss an event or anything that we're doing at the Center for the Political Future. And of course, you can join us at HTTS, hashtag, hashtag, colon, Dornsife slash Center for Political Future dot USC dot EDU. On behalf of the panel, I'm Ron Christie. Thank you so very much for joining us. Have a great rest of your day. Bye, everybody. Thank Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on Election R&D. It helps us a lot when you subscribe and rate the show five stars on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast from. Follow us on Twitter at USC POL Future. That's USC POL Future. Follow us on Facebook and YouTube and visit our website for upcoming programs. 